all of a sudden you find yourself in an interesting replication of family dynamic known as a company in which your emotional state starts to have an emotional impact on the other people in the company. And that is an unavoidable consequence of having that leadership seat. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Welcome again to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt. Have you ever had an experience like this? There I was, sitting by the East River, a warm July breeze blowing across my face, and I was whipping myself up into an anxious frenzy, seemingly out of nowhere, again. What the hell? An email had just come in from a co-founder about a deadline, and I immediately felt my heartbeat spike, my anxiety rise and my body go into a panic. My brain immediately looked for a story to attach to this energy. And I was assuming that the person who had sent the email was asking questions like, what is Dan actually doing? Why did Dan do that? Do we really need to keep working with Dan? They're all really the same internal Dan voice asking the question, am I good enough? I've seen this script before. I've told myself this story. But something different came up to me this time. Something that I believe I was able to find as a new dad. Will my daughter learn to ask these same questions I'm asking myself now? Will she tell herself the same story? Almost like the flip of a switch, I felt the internal dialogue and the story within me shift. I still spoke to the other person. I expressed my anxieties, but not in pursuit of their insurance, but in pursuit of my own growth. And a growth in a friendship and a partnership, but also growth within. I know I can't save my beautiful daughter from her own productive stories, her own monsters in her head. That's just part of the human experience. But I sure as hell can save her from mine. I'm her dad. And in that moment, I recaptured the energy within, and I found a new story for it. As Jerry says, anxiety is simply energy with a story attached. So I chose to rewrite it. In organizations, anxiety can be a tremendously powerful energy, one that can drive us to do all kinds of things. It's also incredibly contagious, easily passed from teammate to teammate, co-founder to co-founder, whether through Slack or email or conversations, often without even being directly expressed or named. So what can be done? Dan Harris and Ben Rubin know anxiety very well. As the co-founders of the popular and awesome meditation app, 10% Happier, along with Derek Haswell, they work every day to support people in sitting with and being with their own anxiety. But they, their partnership, and their organization are not immune from the spread of anxiety, nor are they immune from reacting to it. In this conversation, Jerry, Dan, and Ben explore their partnership, the story of them coming together, they discuss the concept of emotional Wi-Fi in organizations and how we deal with it, and explore the question, what if anxiety is just energy with a story attached? And what if you can use it instead of being used by it? A quick note before we start this episode, I use Ben and Dan's guided meditation app, 10% Happier, every single day. I found it tremendously helpful for me in improving and growing my own meditation practice. 
Uh, we actually recommend now that our Reboot Circles members use it as well. So uh, I would highly recommend you check it out. In fact, they have given everyone who's listening to this podcast a one-month free trial uh, for their premium courses, which are fantastic. Uh, so if you want to check that out, go to 10percenthappiercom slash reboot. That's the number 10 and then percent written out happier.com slash reboot. My name is Tracy Lawrence, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Choose. I think that there is no better way to spend your money if you want to enhance your leadership. David Mandel, the CEO and founder of Pivot Desk. Nothing helps your business's chance for success as well as your personal chance for success as much as the bootcamp experience does. My name is Char Genvier. It was a really amazing experience. I'm Rory Sterling. I'm a founding partner here at BGF Ventures. We're based in London and we're a 200 million pound early stage venture fund. I would recommend uh, Reboot Bootcamp, hands down. I, if you're on the edge and thinking about it, I would just do it. You'll, you won't regret it for a second. Here at Reboot, we believe you already have the capability to withstand the storms of your life and work. You simply need to access it. That's why we've created Bootcamp. At Bootcamp, you'll immerse yourself in the complexity and vulnerability of being a leader and founder with up to 15 other smart and courageous people. You'll find the practical skills, radical self-inquiry, shared experiences not only enhance your leadership and resiliency, but may change your life. To learn more and apply for upcoming boot camps, visit reboot.io slash bootcamps. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to, on the one hand, revisit with you, Ben. And on the other hand, to uh, turn the tables on you, Dan. Um, so, but before we get started, let me ask you both to introduce yourselves. So, Ben, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Ben, uh, the CEO of Timberson Happier. And, um, you know, Jerry, you and I have had uh, at this point a couple of years of uh, various conversations, including the last iteration of this company, um, Change Collective. So, it's been quite a journey since we've uh, had that conversation. That's right. I think we're at episode now 55 or something, and you were in episode 13, if I remember. So that tells us we're... Lucky 13. Um, lucky 13. <laughs> That's right. And Dan, which we will jokingly refer to as the voice of God. Yeah, the voice of God. Um, not the mind of God, but no. uh, didn't definitely have the vocal cords. Um, Dan Harris... A uh, couple jobs. I'm the co-anchor of Nightline on ABC News and also uh, the weekend edition of Good Morning America, also on ABC News. Uh, I write books. Uh, my first book was called 10% Happier, uh, which is kind of a jokey and yet serious take on meditation. And um, that turned into a company with my man, Ben. Uh, so we are co-founders along with another guy named Derek Haswell of uh, the 10% Happier Company. Mm. And again, we had a chance to talk in January uh, for Dan's podcast, and uh, that was a blast. You were great. I'm excited to have co-founders on. I love having co-founders on the show, and I love talking through the issues associated with uh, all of the challenges as we were talking about just before um, we turned on the mics. Co-founder conflict tends to be the number one reason why startups fail, and uh of course, as we often say, well, running out of cash is, but the impediment 
to properly funding a business tends to be co-founder conflict. And it is the number one issue that folks come into Reboot for. It's the number one issue that, you know, coaches and I encounter that and the sense of isolation and um, loneliness associated with the job. Mm. Um, this is all followed quickly by complaints about the investors, which we'll get to later because <laughs> I met a couple of your investors. So I don't know that we have any complaints about our investors. Not yet. Not yeah. yet. Uh, yeah. Our investors are actually kind of amazing. Any, I mean, any I'm startup lives long enough. We'll, yeah. we'll find ways to complain. I, I am well, part of the dynamic with, uh, between uh, me and Ben is that I, I'm such a newbie to, I've been a journalist my whole life, not a, not a business person. So I don't, although my, my, my brother is a venture capitalist. Um, mm-hmm. I don't actually the know. The infamous Matt Harris. The infamous Matt Harris. Um, I don't actually know much about what VCs do, but the guys uh, and, and women who we've dealt with, or at least I, from my perspective, are phenomenal. They're like awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll, 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 we'll go for a long walk after this recording and we'll talk a little bit about that. I'll, what I'll say briefly is, Shark Tank is just the beginning. Uh, it, yeah. is, it is not a picture of the entire experience by any stretch of the imagination. Fair enough. So, you know, we were talking via email, we were talking as we were setting this up about some of the ideas that might be helpful to talk through here. And I think that um, would be a bit of a story that would be helpful for people to hear. And, you know, the first thing I would say is yours is a relatively unique co-founder relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from one member of the team being God, or certainly the voice of God. Um, ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, as, just as we were sitting here, I was thinking about, um, you know, we we now know each other very well, Dan, but um, when we decided to co-found a business together, you know, just about a year and a half ago, we didn't know each other that well. I was thinking about the same thing, actually. Yeah. When, um, I had no idea what I was getting into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did it. Very glad. But I had no, I, I, I once heard the co-founder of Nantucket Nectars saying, if I had known what this was going to entail before I started, I would never have done it. I think there's a lot of people <laughs> listening who can relate to yeah. just that, not even as a co-founder, but as an entrepreneur. Yeah. But take us back to that story. Yeah. So, you know, when we chatted um, about, you know, maybe three years ago, two and a half years ago, Jerry, we yeah. were starting a business called Change Collective which is a course platform working with lots of different dance, right? Lots of different authors and bringing their material to a mobile device and helping people change behavior. And so uh, we met Dan in the context of that sort of initial startup vision. And, you know, the, you know, the, the nitty gritty um, aside, you know, what, what happened when we launched Dan's course is it changed our entire business, uh, but it did it kind of in slow motion where, you know, looking back at it now, uh, it seems entirely clear that, you know, we made this shift from a broader course platform to 10% happier. When it was happening, uh, it was really anxiety provoking and challenging. You know, we'd launched at that point eight or nine different courses, uh, none of which had been a real success until we launched 10% happier. And, you know, I remember actually sitting, I was in uh, the time San Francisco pitching the Change Collective vision uh, having just launched 10% Happier and getting just really negative feedback across the board from friends, from investors. And uh, then I went back to Boston and I spoke with uh, actually someone I think you and I both know, Jason Jacobs mm-hmm. of Runkeeper. And he, you know, he's a very sort of fiery guy. And I gave him this change collective pitch. And he basically said, why are you doing this? Right. Just burn the bridges. 
And if you're telling me this, you know, meditation thing and 10% happier and Dan Harris is like the thing that's working for the business, mm-hmm. just go that direction, burn the bridges. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very, you know, again, in, in retrospect, obvious, but in, in the time, it's very challenging, partially because we didn't know what Dan would be like as a co-founder. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pressure to look at Dan as an example, as just a celebrity name attached mm-hmm. to a product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, why would you, you know, that is, by the way, you know, every VC, every investor hates these celebrity driven type concepts. And so mm-hmm. sort of wrapping our minds around potentially working with someone very closely who, you know, has a, a different background and a different, um, and as he admitted, no experience, as no a experience as a business person, uh, and, you know, some serious ego as well, <laughs> in addition to some actually, serious meditative practice. I have the ego, but not really the celebrity. Right. <laughs> Worst of both worlds. Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a, at that moment, it was, you know, a leap into the unknown, um, thinking about working with Dan uh, and, you know, that's been an incredible experience, but it was very challenging at the time. But let's stay with that for a moment. Cause I remember our podcast conversation. Um, it's one of the few podcast conversations that we've had that when I listened to it after it was broadcast that I cried because that was the conversation that we had where I talked I'm smiling because I made Jerry cry. You made Jerry cry <laughs> because I revealed my own struggles with depression hmm. and at that time and my own suicidal impulses and that sort of thing. It was a very, very powerful conversation. And, and there's something I said this off mic to you, but I'll, I'll recall it. I remember you carrying this fear about ending up with a smoking black hole again. That was the phrase to describe your last venture before Change Collective slash 10% Happier. Mm-hmm. What impact did that have as a sort of contextual backdrop to what was going on? Yeah. I mean, it was huge, right? We were, I was essentially staring again at that black hole, uh, but also at potentially massive success. And, you know, they were both right there. A massive success that was not what you originally envisioned. Potentially, right. But at that point, unknown, right. Right. And it was a very uncertain moment, right. We, um, I remember very clearly, you know, you know, Dan, you've, you've mentioned now that you really like our investors. You know, some of the advice that they were giving at that moment was, you know, do whatever you want, Ben, but are you crazy? Right. This is this is a really big direction shift and you guys are almost out of money and, you know, you know, Dan seems like a nice guy, but how committed will he really be? You know, is he, you know, you're going to invite him in as a co-founder to the business. What he has a, he has another job. Like what does this even mean? They were asking the right questions. Yeah. Those were the right questions. I don't take offense at that. No. That's what good investors should tell you. But what did it do for you internally or what did it do? Uh, to that internal dialogue that was going on. You know, on. there was, I th- I'd say there was a, there was an internal journey that went from, um, I think I resisted for a long time whether going in the 10% happier direction because there's just, even though there wasn't that much success behind Change Collective, there's so much momentum. Mm-hmm. Right? And my worry about creating another smoking black hole um, was preventing me from seeing the better direction, I think, for quite a while. And, and, and let's be clear, the, the 10% happier direction included not only going all in on Dan's content as really a, a platform for these great teachers 
to come on and talk and, and to really participate in the application. But it was also opening up to bringing in, forget the fact that Dan was a celebrity, bringing in after the fact someone for you and Derek as a, an equal partner. Mm-hmm. Um, that experience alone, yeah. emotionally, there's, I'm imagining some risk in that for you. Huge risk, yeah. And, you know, not not only that, but someone who, again, didn't have any business experience, right? I remember there was one momentous conversation where you said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not a business guy, so I don't really understand this, but why wouldn't I own 90% of this if I'm, <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's my brand and my idea and, like, mm-hmm. I'm the man, like, why... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. Mm-hmm. Can you explain it again? <laughs> uh, I'll explain it to you in about two minutes. <laughs> well, luckily, the infamous Matt Harris stepped in. Um, for anybody who doesn't know Matt, um, he's a VC at Bain Capital and really kind of midwifed the deal, stepped in the middle of it, talked to me about the basics of venture economics and what was reasonable and what wasn't. And that's what allowed it to happen. Yeah. But I'm curious, Dan, having heard the backdrop, I don't know if you guys have shared this before, but having yeah. heard the backdrop of uh, what Ben was going through, um, had you heard that story before? Yeah, well, I remember taking a walk with you through Central Park after the course, the first 10% Happier course had come out and we were talking about how it had done well. And I was saying to you, well, maybe you ought to just shift the company to 10% happier. And you were like, well, my investors aren't going to want to do build a company around a celebrity. And I kept thinking, you guys need to raise the bar on what a celebrity is, A. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, you definitely seemed reluctant. And I got it, actually. I mean, if, if uh, while I will not put myself in the category of being a true celebrity, I still get why you wouldn't want to hinge a business on somebody who's got so many other things going on who you don't know that well. I, I thought the advice you were getting from your advisors and your own internal um, resistance to it actually was wise. Um, well, what about his internal state of mind, the, the fear that he was carrying? About? About it failing again. Oh, but look, I share that. And I, I actually am happy to have somebody in my orbit to whom I can outsource some of that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that Ben, I know no matter how much I'm worrying, he's, he's doing, he's, he's working double time. Did um, you know that he was carrying that fear in the beginning? Yes. Uh, in the beginning, no. I mean, I sensed that he was an anxious guy. Uh, I wouldn't say crippled by anxiety but that definitely a worrier mm-hmm. but like where i come from culturally like that that i say that as a that's a compliment. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. um but as i've gotten to know him quite well over time we spent on now we spent a lot of time together i now have a much better sense of yes the the amount of uh anxiety he works with and, and look i've got my own pronounced history of the trifecta of depression anxiety and panic disorder so we're our brothers in this particular struggle. Right. So I want you to hold on to that. We may circle back to this sort of shared experience. One of the things that happens in relationship is that we unconsciously choose someone that's ideal for us to work through our issues with. This is a core Buddhist concept. If you read John Wellwood's work, for example, he explores this really in depth. 
And this is true not only of romantic relationships, but it's also true of co-founder relationships, which I often joke is, you know, sexless marriages <laughs> or marriage. Um, <laughs> and there's a, I was looking for where the similarities were. And this sort of, forget the context of the environment of the story. And, and Dan, you, you've done such a brave job in describing your own journey in 10% Happier. This is a phenomenal book. Thank you. Um, because it's also funny, but it's also heartbreakingly warm and real. But one of the things that I see, and I can see it almost intuitively in the relationship between the two of you, is this notion of this sort of shared brotherhood. I mean, you use the term. And that's one of the things that we do in our co-founder relationships is that we pick someone unconsciously who can who's a perfect foil for us to work through those issues he's a younger version of with a completely different context and there's a relationship there yeah i like to joke he's a younger version of me except for better at math <laughs> and quite a bit taller yeah. i wasn't gonna go <laughs> that there was not fair you <laughs> see the passive aggressive let's talk about that passive aggressive that was, that was aggressive aggressive <laughs> So what was the experience like for you, Dan? A complete Elmer Fudd, uh, you know, stumbling into something I had no idea I was getting into. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I liked the idea in theory of, uh, you know, once, once that first course came out and it was mm -hmm. successful, it was, and actually right around that time, coincidentally, my boss, the president of ABC News, James Golson, who's somebody I go way back with and we're, we, he's been not only my boss, but he's been a, a friend and advisor for a long time. He actually recommended, hey, you, you should start thinking about a subscription service. Mm -hmm. um, and I was familiar with the success of, of course, my friends over at Headspace. And um, so I was really, I, I liked the idea of doing this company. Of course, I was, as Ben said, you know, really, I had no idea of what I was getting into. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess that's the long and short of it. I was excited, but uh, completely ignorant. Mm -hmm. So take us to today. How's the relationship working today? And, you know, this is in effect an opportunity to just sort of work on some issues here. Forget for a moment the audience. How's it working? And what would be helpful to talk through? I think, well, I'm going to let Ben take the, the lead on that. But, but I do want to say that, you know, when you were talking about that time that Ben was in when, when he was dealing with sort of an uncertain future around change collective, which where you know, they were running out of money and things weren't going super well, he was dealing with having to make the leap with me and not knowing too much about what kind of guy I would be to work with, mm. which is again, all like, I didn't even know what kind of guy I'd be to work with. Um, and having to raise money in that environment, mm -hmm. and so shift, uh, turn the ship around. We had to. We lost some people internally as a consequence of this. We had to get new people. We had to bring me on as a co-founder and talk me into what the economics would be, and then go out and raise money. All of that at in one like two month period, and, and relaunch a product. Yeah, and relaunch a product, and actually he did it, it beautifully. They were beautifully. And I think that actually really cemented our relationship, the watching him ace that and, 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 ha and having my brother point out that, hey, 
look, let me tell you, as somebody who's been in this business, that what he just did is like a triple Lindy. So you should just be aware of that. So okay, I think so that I'm, really set us off on a good. I'm going to ask you to hold and Dan and Ben, I want you to take in what Dan just gave you. Yeah. Okay. We're both admirers of Ben. What you just described, what your brother said to you, this is a triple Lindy. Okay. For a guy who was convinced, because let's be honest, Ben, who was convinced that it was going to be another smoking black hole. Okay. This is magic. This is really hard. You know, your, your buddy Dan has a safety net. You have a whole nother life here. This is all Ben's got. Right. Yep. That's a great point. Right. This is it. He's doing the triple Lindy without a safety net. Yep. And even though, right, he doesn't have the family you have. He doesn't have the obligations. The consequence of failure, and you can relate to this, Dan, because I've read your book, the consequence of failure is existential. Sure, and he has obligations to his employees. Yes. So I notice your pronouns. Are you a co-founder, Dan? <laughs> That's a really, really interesting thing you picked up on. Uh -huh. That's absolutely right. That that uh, our employees is what I should have said. You both have responsibility. Now, but what you may be relating to, it may not merely be a function of the fact that you've got a safety net someplace else. You've got an entire career that's available to you. However, the twists and turns it may take, whether it's a new show on ABC or another book or anything along those lines, you've got these other things going on. But you both carry the sense of responsibility. And what you notice about your buddy, Ben, is he feels it. I mean, we were joking before, just before we turned on the mics and started recording, how he was taking care of even you, Dan, and saying to me, well, Jerry, you know, you can talk about this stuff and talk about this stuff. Right. Does he do that with all of your employees? Yeah. Well, I mean, Ben and I have talked a lot about the fact that he views uh, leadership as a kind of service. And then that can sound a little, a little bit like a trope. Um, uh, well, he's been listening to my podcast. That's why he well, plays it. Yeah. But I mean, even, even in the context of, you know, he had gone to Burning Man over the summer um, because he's a gigantic weirdo and he goes to Burning Man. And um, he, there was, you know, when you go to Burning Man or any social outing with a bunch of people, there's some questions about like, who's going to kind of just like take the lead and pick out where you set the stuff up and what are we doing tonight and all this stuff. And Ben s struggles with like, am I always going to be in CEO mode? Do I always have to do this? And then I think he realized after a while uh, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to take the lead here because uh, people like to people like to be led. I think I re referred to it recently as the um, benevolent dictatorship of Ben. And uh, so he kind of just carried the mantle of helping everybody steer toward making uh, uh, mutually uh, agreed upon decisions about where they were going to camp and what they were going to do, et cetera, et cetera, because he sees it as a kind of service uh, and – uh, yeah, I think that's great. Okay, so we're going to stop talking about you in the third person, Ben. And yeah. yeah. 
uh, well, there's two warring things going on. I'll, 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 I'll get to both of them, but the first is you know, deep appreciation that, you know, mm. that was, uh, it was a very difficult time. And I, I think, uh, we did pull off a pretty incredible pivot and you know, it gives me a lot of confidence in myself and, and in the team that despite really incredibly difficult odds and finances and I don't think anyone standing on the outside would have bet on us making that flip uh, that we pulled that off. Right? I think that says, I, I both am deeply appreciative that that's been seen and it also um, gives me a lot of confidence that whatever other struggles I personally or we as a team face will be able to do our best and meet them. But the the second piece that I'm bringing into this is, you, know, you mentioned this quality of um, leadership. And the almost the first thing that I thought of when I heard you talking about this was, you know, don't forget the rest of the team. Right? Mm. It's like, I didn't, I certainly, um, I played a key, one of the key roles, but, um, you know, our co-founder Derek um, in that time period helped us execute on the pivot and relaunched an entire product and developed some incredible new content with Joseph and with Sharon. Um, yeah, and he did it with one arm tied behind his back right. because we our engineering team was not was not gigantic at right. that point. Only yeah. the other person I want to mention is uh, we had at that point it was a three person team, and the only person who stuck with us during this transition was Brent, right? Um, who you know heroically essentially took the entire technical code base and shifted it from Change Collective to Ten Percent Happier. Amen. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So I'll give you one of my favorite leadership quotes. And it's uh, from Lao Tzu. A leader is best who, when the work is done, the people say, we did this ourselves. A leader is best who, when the work is done, the people say, we did this ourselves. Mm. Right? And Ben, you're nodding deeply. Um, in my view and in my observation, that's how organizations scale humanely. You know, Dan, when we met in... I guess it was December, January, and we broadcast, we did that podcast. You were asking me a little bit about my Buddhist practice, and my practice shows up in that kind of a belief. What I think there's an opportunity that's implicit in all of our organizations, which is for each of us to grow as human beings. And in the two or three years that I've been hanging out, much less frequently than you with your co-founder, I see the growth. And that expression of a kind of well-managed ego, not uh, falsely self-denigrating in the guise of humility, but a sense of just groundedness. Yes, what we did was difficult and it was hard. And let's not lose sight of the team. Let's not, re let's remember that this is a collective experience. That's a hallmark of really high quality, emotionally intelligent leadership. Um, Daniel Goleman would be proud. Friend of the company, by the way. Uh, I, that's what I thought. Yeah. So great. You guys are great. Everything's great. <laughs> no problems. No problems. You love each other. You say nice things to each other. You learn about each other's 
origin stories. Oh, I didn't really, I didn't. So everything's good. Not always. Not always. Uh, I think there's a couple of challenges, uh, both mm-hmm. in our relationship and in the company that, um, mm-hmm. the one I, I think I'd like to start with is actually this, you know, Dan, you mentioned this brotherhood around um, anxiety, really. Mm-hmm. And like you and I are both very um, anxious, we go there automatically. Fear and anxiety is just part of who we are. And one thing that's up there in the core values. <laughs> that's right. Um, and, you know, the good news is as meditators, we often see it. Mm. Um, not always, but sometimes. And, and yet the thing that I struggle with pretty deeply is that um, Dan, Dan and I can kind of spiral together into mm. negativity mm. very quickly. Yeah. And I find that then amazingly, like you having a bad day can spiral into the entire team through me. Mm -hmm. Because your anxiety catches to me and then we're anxious together and, you know, somewhat in a non-constructive way sometimes. And then I can spin that right back out into a group of people in Boston who otherwise would have had a great day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's something I personally struggle with and I think is part of the dynamic that we've created I think that's legit. Yeah, I was going to say, Dan, do you yeah, recognize this? Totally. Um, I also think part of the issue here is that, you know, you said the team in Boston, the team's in Boston. I live in New York. And so there is a, um, and the reason for that is because the Change Collective started in Boston mm-hmm. and um, I have lived in New York for 17 years and that's just, the we have this bifurcation that's, um, built in on many levels, not only bifurcation geographically, but also sort of in terms of bandwidth that I have this so whole other career. You. Yeah, go why, for it. Why are you explaining that to us? More explaining to the listener. Why? To give a sense of the depth of the challenge. I see. Because I was wondering if you felt guilty about that. There are things I feel guilty about. Um, there are definitely things I feel guilty about, but that was just related factually. It is related to some things I do feel guilty about, though. How so? Well, I think we talked about leadership, and you pointed out before that I referred to his employees instead of our employees. That I, It's interesting that I – it's interesting to me that, I, you know, I've designed my entire news career – around not actually having any management uh, responsibilities. Nobody reports to me. Right. Um, and I like that. I'm, I'm, I love get being involved in my projects and the shows that I do, the stories that I'm working on, the books that I write. But I'm not really uh, into management. Um, and yet we're all leaders in a way. And yes. I recognize as somebody who's been at ABC News for a long time that I do have responsibility in, ter- in uh, leadership. It may be, it's maybe not management technically speaking, but I am a uh, high-profile veteran employee. Well, and there's so- another way in which your leadership is actually manifesting itself. And that, and um, Ben pointed that out, and it's the phenomena of emotional Wi-Fi. See, this Explain is... Explain that. Yeah, see, the, this is a consequence of authority, agency, and power within an organization, which... Uh, is not described in organization charts. It's not described in job descriptions. And it goes like this. Oh, shit, Dan feels anxious. And even though we're a couple hundred miles away in Boston, we feel it. Yeah. 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 Right? And even though you've successfully avoided 
for most of your adult career being responsible for employees. And that's what some of that language was all around. You're an individual contributor in your career and, and you enjoy that and you've been successful. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, more like an auteur. More like an auteur, except that all of a sudden you find yourself in an interesting replication of family dynamic known as a company in which your emotional state starts to have an emotional impact on the other people in the company. And that is an unavoidable consequence of having that leadership seat. Yes. And I think I stumbled into it, as I said before, Elmer Fudd style without thinking through those consequences. That's right. And so when you asked why I was explaining the multi-level bifurcation within the company, and I was explaining that, I was in part explaining it to make sure that everybody was up to date on the facts, but also because it is connected to things that do concern me about my responsibilities and whether I'm fulfilling them. That's right. That's the guilt accurately. piece. Yes. Am I being a good manager? Yeah. Is it guilt is not the, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm, you know, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm prone to guilt. It may be too strong a word. Just something that I have my antenna up about in terms of, oh, this is probably an area where I can do better. Right. So let's relax the desire to do better and let's stay with the meditation posture, the meditative posture, just noticing it. Mm-hmm. Right. So notice that there's a storyline, but you know, every time we have an anxious state of mind, every, every feeling state gets interpreted by the prefrontal cortex and is married to a storyline. And the storyline might be, oh shit, this is going to be a smoking black hole again. Or the storyline may be, I never said I was going to be a manager. Who said I was supposed to be a manager? I, let me explain to you. I know nothing about business, Right. Because what we're doing is we're responding to the storyline, right? Now, if what I was saying before is true, and it is, that part of the unintended, oftentimes unrecognized responsibility of a leader is to actually be aware of their own emotional state, then being aware of the storylines that we start to create around that is really a key way of working with, not suppressing, working with the anxiety and the fear that arises in the leadership seat. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So one or the other of you starts to have a feeling state of anxiety. Ben's storyline might be, oh shit, are we going to fail? Dan's storyline might be, oh shit, am I going to run? I don't know, make this up tail between my legs back to the studio at, at ABC. You know, am I going to, like all those people said, damn, what are you doing? Come on, stop playing in this startup world. Whatever it is, the storyline is. Nobody said that, by the way. Good, they're probably jealous. I don't, I, I don't labor under the delusion that people are spending that much time thinking about me. Oh, I like that. Good, okay. Whatever it is, though, that's feeding it. When the anxiety comes up, how do you guys handle that? What do you do? Yeah, Ben. You know, we usually just jump right to the issues, right? It's like very tactical. It's, mm-hmm. um, I think the, the, the anxiety is seen, but not spoken about mm-hmm. for the most part, right? It's, you know, what, whatever the issue is, right? There's a, a number that's off for a month or a piece of press that comes out about someone else that strikes us in the wrong way. And, you know, immediately it's like tactics. Mm-hmm. 
And and tell me a story. What what happens? Does one of you email the other? So you see some piece of news about a competitor. Oh, look at what calm, right? And look at what they did. They're both smiling. Yeah, it starts usually starts with an email, and then you know mm-hmm. the next time we're you know in conversation, we swing back to it. It's like, well, what what did that mean? You know, or that you know. And we can see the anxiety just like passing back and forth. All right. So the narrative goes, the anxiety, there's some spark, there's a stimulus, there's some data point, pop. It starts the anxious mind. And then the story making starts. And usually it ends in a threat of some sort. Right. There's that anxiety. And Ben, you said something. You said, we then start to go right to the, the issue. Right. What, Dan, you've been practicing and working with teachers for a long time. What's happening to Ben in that moment? Let's just talk about Ben in the third person again. So anxiety, and he goes right to the planning point. What's happened? Yeah, actually, I feel like in in most of our interactions, it's him talking me off the ledge. Ah, so you go to that state. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Ben, what's happening to Dan? He, in that you, you tend to hide your anxiety from me. I mean, I see yeah. it. But well, I, that's part well, of his I, quotes. I, I'll tell you why I hide my anxiety, because you have so much of it <laughs> to go around. <laughs> I'm worried. I'm just so worried about the spiral. Because yeah. if I show my anxiety and then believe me, you're not going to pull me off the ledge. No, I'm not going to pull you off the ledge. All right. So <laughs> he goes He goes to the... I might. Who knows? He, you never you ever, you ever actually really given me a shot to do that. Okay. We're not going to let you get out of control. He, <laughs> he goes to the planning point. How are we going to respond to this particular pinpoint thing? What's his mind doing? Well, I'd say he, sometimes he goes even further. So I'll give you yeah. uh, an example. We, uh, we had a new uh, content concept mm-hmm. that we'd be working on for a while. And, we, you know, Dan went out and pitched it. Mm-hmm. And some of the feedback was mm-hmm. negative, right? It was like, oh, this, is, this isn't mass market enough. Or, this isn't, this isn't going to you know, this particular piece mm. maybe isn't going to be good. Mm. And Dan immediately went to the entire, at least from my perception, it was mm-hmm. like the entire conception around this company and the content that we create is not mass market. No, no. That's 50. That's, I, I, you're absolutely right. I spun it way too far, but I didn't go that far. I basically said, he, ben and I had come up with this. We got really excited about the idea of meditation content. And then I went out and pitched a particular piece of content and got very quite negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Or let's just say it didn't work. And then I I universalized to our whole content fantasy is just that, a fantasy. I didn't say the whole co- company was screwed. But, but so Ben's actually right. The conclusion is... Yeah. What's the logical well, conclusion? No, no I, I didn't, oh, that okay. wasn't my logical conclusion. But I, I went there. Well, there that, we go. That's, that's, my that's own, an example. That's my own yes, story. Yes, okay, yes, so yes, this yes. is beautiful. So what happens <laughs> is op, uh, experience, <laughs> data point, emotional state, conclusion, storyline conclusion. Yes. Not necessarily true, not necessarily false, just a storyline. It provokes response in Ben. Smoking black hole. Smoking black hole, because that's where it ends up. It, it's always right. going to end right. up in a smoking black hole. So, But then he does the quote-unquote servant leadership thing, and he suppresses it. I'm not going to talk about it. So he doesn't spin Dan up. And now we have the dynamic. Okay. 
Yeah, that's it. That's it. That, yeah, I would say that you've put your finger on it. Okay. So not an unfamiliar dynamic. Uh, to me, in other um, relationships, it's something I do to myself. I can, I can have that entire arc all within my own mind, right? Okay. So I want to explore a couple of quick things associated with it. Dan, what is, what's the benefit for you to go to that place? What, what benefit do you derive from going to the anxious place? And, I, and I'm not asking to elicit the opposite response. Sometimes people, I literally want the create, you know, you know, a genuine response to how is that response in service to you? You've done enough internal work to understand. Yeah, your yeah, yeah. I think seeing your situation with dry eyes is important. So being anxious, you associate being anxious and identifying the threat and on a sort of grounded basis as, quote, seeing things with dry eyes. Well, to a certain extent it is, and then you cross the line into useless okay, rumination and fear. Right, so, so that's the well-schooled adult Dan speaking. Yeah. I want to hear from the unschooled... The uh, id. Yeah, I yeah. want to hear from, from the childhood survival strategy that yeah. said, when in doubt, get anxious. Right. Okay. So that kid, you remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. She's right here. How, why was it valuable for that kid? Why was, what did it do to, for that kid to go to that place? Mm, just thinking about options, right? Ah, so notice thinking about options, options that would what? Get me out of the situation, figure out what the right strategy moving forward would be, et cetera, okay. et cetera. There are three basic wishes all human beings have. To love and be loved, to feel safe, and to belong. Three. Safety can feel physical. Am I well fed? Am I not being hit? Am I living in a place without violence? There's something about going to anxiety that keeps you safe. Because it lays out what my options are to deal with the threat that's in front of me. Gives you some agency for sure, or sense of agency. It gives, that's, that's the key. This, the, the little nuance that you just shifted to, that was your adult coming back in. Sorry. No, no, that's beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad for it. It gives you the sense of agency. Yeah. And that's why the state of mind goes immediately to planning. I call it the planning mind. Well, what are we going to do? We got a no shit moment. What are we going to do? What's, oh. what's the better, what's the alternative move there? Well, what has meditation taught you? What did you, what do you learn on the cushion? Just investigate non-judgmentally. And pause, sit still, investigate non-judgmentally, hold yourself. Because the wish, there's actually two, two wishes in that rush to plan. The first wish is I want to be safe. The second wish is, I fucking don't like anxiety. How the hell do I get rid of this as quickly as possible? Mm -hmm. And what the Dharma teaches us is, oh, 
actually stay and investigate the thing that's scary. Now let's take it into a business consequence. Why would it, why would it be a benefit for a leader to not rush away or rush off the cushion when anxiety arises? Because there's opportunity implicit in the threat. Because there may be options that don't occur to the planning mind if you move too quickly. And as you both experienced, if you move too quickly to the planning mind without giving ventilation to the emotional feeling, you can spur anxiety in everybody around you. The smartest people in the company tend not to be the CEO. Mm. This company aside. (laughs) The smartest people in the company tend to be experts in their areas of responsibility. Let's say, for example, you have a server crash. Great. What are you going to do about that, Dan? I don't have a fucking clue. I don't know how to build servers. I don't know how to recover them. What's my job as the leader? Get my feelings under control. Pause. Create some space and not pass the baton of the anxiety to the head of engineering who's trying to work their hardest to do what they know what to do, which is build the, rebuild the server. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. So the baton passing of anxiety that goes on between the two of you can slow down if you investigate the benefit. Oh, right. I'm going to planning mind because planning mind promises me something false. It promises me that I'll never feel anxious. Or that the threat that seems to be so evident can be managed by thinking. And then we take a step back from that then something really magical happens. We can create the space for people who actually are skilled. And they may be within the company or outside the company to come in and say, oh, what's happening? Existential threat to the company? You have this brilliant resource in your brother. Hey, Matt, what would you do? Right? You got a friend in Jerry. Jerry... We're having this conflict. What what should we do? I feel like I'm lecturing a little bit. I want to check in. Is this landing for you guys? It is landing. Actually, you 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 do this tactic quite a bit when I'm perseverating about something. I think just yesterday when we were having a big conversation about something, and you'll often say, uh, you know. there's got to be an expert in this particular issue, you know, or, or experts. And let, let's let's look around. Let's talk, um, which is actually a good way of kind of bursting me out of my little doom cycle of like, oh, yeah, there's probably some sunshine we can bring into this situation. And so I think you intuitively go to what Jerry's talking about. Yeah, I think I think at our best we we do. But, you know, when it's a particularly tough moment or we're tired, we'll play that anxiety ping pong and then I'll you know, pass it on to the rest of the team as well, just as a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> well, the emotional Wi-Fi knows no end. Yeah. It just goes bang, 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 yeah. bang, 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 bang. Well, one thing I r- realized sort of sitting and, and listening to that conversation is that um, 
and I'm not sure whether this is where to go with this, but I'll, mm. I'll throw it out there is that I think we use anxiety as a way of um, looking for opportunities. Mm. Now, I know I do. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to realize that like, I will mm. go look for something to be anxious about mm-hmm. because, you know, if I'm not anxious about something, we're not making any progress. We're not doing any better. And, you know, the, there's a, a, the rational side of my brain, the adult side of my brain says, I could just as easily look for opportunities to be excited about and to be able to help people meditate or go deeper that, you know, that there's a flip side to the anxiety, which is, you know, excitement and compassion and loving kindness, which could drive thinking and planning and finding of opportunities. But, um, the very thing that, you know, mm-hmm. we, we were just celebrating around like this terribly anxious moment with change collective and mm-hmm. making the pivot and, you know, the triple Lindy, like, that's all, that all came out of like being boxed into a corner and being more anxious than I've ever been in my life. Uh, th- th- this is brilliant. It's brilliantly self-aware and it's wonderful. And I want to reflect back on it. Man, what you're identifying is that sometimes we use the habit of anxiety to actually create um, forward momentum. Mm-hmm. We use the habit of anxiety to create what we perceive to be um, motion. And I joke that we often confuse motion for meaning. And I love how you started to think about, well, is there, are there ways to reframe that experience? In hearing that story, I I recall um, a moment, Dan, I'm also subject to panic disorders and, and I officially have PTSD. Rock on. Um, And I remember one time sitting in the meditation cushion and being overwhelmed by anxiety. Just, just, it just came out of fucking nowhere. Like I just was, where is this coming from? And it was in that moment that I heard Pema Chodron voice in my head say to me, like a dog, sit, stay. And I could watch my mind run through a whole long list of all the things to feel anxious about. And every single item that I was supposedly checking off the list to make sure everything was safe was in fact making me more anxious. And so instead, I just actually let the feeling ride through me and then it passed. And then I actually could think clearly about all the things that I might actually be troubled by. And... That's what I was reminded of when you were talking, when you were speaking about it. For me, the anxiety habit of mind was a way to deal with, say, anger. In my family, anger was dangerous. So anytime I was angry, get anxious, because that's actually safer. Mm-hmm. Right? So suppress mm-hmm. the anger, get anxious. Whew, now I'm anxious. Now I got to figure out what I'm anxious about. But by pausing the whole thing, I can break that chain that runs through my family or runs through the organization, and I take responsibility for my own internal state. And I see Ben struggling to do that in his efforts to to hold his leadership seat. Does that resonate? Yeah, it 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 resonates, and you know the what I'm struggling with is I I find that it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Right. It, and I, I almost don't know another great way of operating, right? The effective thing that I know how to do that's my go-to is to go find something to be anxious about and then 
jump into planning. That's not fair on you because you've spent a lot of time. Um, we as a company um, spend a lot of time getting super excited about stuff that's going to help people and be cool. And just we want to see it exist in the world. And, um, you know, you spent all of this energy of late thinking about like a YouTube channel that you're really excited about and uh, work, working with producers on and looking at uh, other people whose work that could be inspirational for us. And uh, we've got this UX revamp that we're in the middle of that everybody's really excited about. You pushed me to write this book that's coming out at New Year's that um, that we got really excited about the concept and went out and executed it. So there was anxiety that braided through a lot of these projects. But the impulse on most of them was, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if... So, and I thought it was quite brilliant and beautiful to what you framed before about like the difference between motivated by anx motivation by anxiety or motivation by loving kindness slash creativity slash excitement um, slash compassion. But I do actually think that a lot of what we do as a company, that what you do as a CEO, is actually motivated by the latter. Okay. How did that feel hearing that? I think it helped me realize that, yeah, the, sometimes it is. Um, it's still feels like even though rationally I'm like, oh, you're right. I, we do get excited about things and we do things out of passion and interest. It still feels like uh, the most effective way, the most, you know, if you really want to do the triple Lindy, you got to be back against the wall. Hmm. So, hmm. so notice that tendency. No, I, I, I saw something else happen here and, I, and I'm going to point it out without saying that somebody did something wrong. The experience that we that we often have with these sorts of feeling states, the impulse is to move past them as quickly as possible. We, we have that impulse ourselves, but we also have that impulse for each other. And Dan, what I was a little concerned about was that there was a little bit of, Ben, don't feel anxious, <laughs> implicit. And let me give you the list of reasons why what you're doing is okay which was motivated by love and care and concern for your co-founder and your friend. And there is a benefit to allowing someone to work through the cycle of their own experience so that they can arrive at the place of self-soothing. Not because Dan tells Ben that, that Ben has done a good job, but because Ben tells Ben that Ben has done a good job. Fair enough. My apologies for not allowing you to self-soothe. It's 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 a uh, <laughs> it's it's a normal human impulse. I know it was also motivated by accuracy. I mean, I'm a journalist. I couldn't, but but, but <laughs> I just you know it, it's just not true. It is a story he's telling himself. Yes, yes, and you can relate to telling oneself a story. Oh yeah, definitely right. right. And that that kind of back and forth. See, what we're identifying, what I'm trying to give you are means to slow the anxiety baton passing yeah. that might exist within the organization. And it's counterintuitive to say, in order to slow the baton passing, allow the person to feel anxious. Sometimes you got to let them burn it off. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. And But I also love something else that's happening, which is you're both starting to reframe, quote, anxiety as energy. It's energy with a story attached to it. The story, if we shift the story into something positive, all of a sudden it becomes not anxiety, but in fact energy for motion, energy to move forward, energy to do things. That kind of sophisticated movement and working with your own mind 
is really powerful within an organization. It first requires this sort of pausing and recognizing where we are and then moving on, which then leads me to close out with one little tool that I would suggest. And this is something that, Ben, we may have talked about before, but we it's something that we teach in our boot camps and it's some, something that I encourage all of our organizations to do. And it goes like this. It's called red, yellow, green. Okay. And what it's a very simple exercise is that before we start a meeting, we just identify what state we're in, red, yellow, or green. Red is I am off the charts. And for you guys, it might be anxiety, but for others, it may be anger. It may be, you know, complete distractedness. I'm physically present, but my mind is so torn that I'm like, I'm barely even here. Yellow, I'm here, but sort of not here. I'm still carrying a bunch of things. Green, I'm fully present. I'm like in my body, I'm occupying things. We typically start almost every engagement, like our partners meetings begin with red, yellow, green. The point is not to then psychotherapeutically work with whatever content is going on. Oh, I had a fight with my spouse last night, and so therefore, blah, 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 blah. It's just to notice non-judgmentally our internal state. So we give some voice and space to it so that then the content of the work that we do is not infused with all of that energy. Or at least less infused. Yeah. You're less less infused. Or not there, unconsciously right? infused. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. And so what ends up happening is we just, oh, it literally is a nanosecond of meditation. It's like, right. boom. Oh. Yeah, it's mindfulness. It's, it's pure, secular, direct mindfulness. It's how am I actually doing? sharing that without necessarily going into the content if you don't want to allows the other person to then say i'm in the green he's in the red instead of what normally happens emotional wi-fi i'm in the green all of a sudden i'm in the red and i have no reason i have no understanding why i just went into the red other than the tightness in dan's voice has caused my amygdala to go hyper alert there's a threat it starts to break the sharing of the feelings of, of the negative aspects of the feelings and create space for empathy and compassion. Oh, you're having a hard time. Maybe this really difficult um, intellectual concept that we're about to talk to, maybe we can talk about that tomorrow. Let's just give you a little space today. Good. That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Now we get to go. More human workplace. Does this seem yeah, workable? Definitely. Yeah, it seems like it could be really useful. And, and it's that, I think the, the worst cases of the emotional Wi-Fi are, are you know, when, you're, when we're both in red or yellow and, and it's unacknowledged and That's right. it just sort of spreads. That's right. I'm envisioning all, all of your uh, work colleagues calling me up and thanking me for stopping that. Yeah, especially since it's often like on a conference call and I'm in the middle of something else. <laughs> right. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And the next thing we have to work on is if you keep on saying red, 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 red. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know a few meditation teachers who might be able to help. <laughs> I'll get your number. 
Well, I think with that, we should probably wrap. I want to thank you both. Thank you. Um, I, you know, uh, I think this was uh, just a, a really curious experience. And, um, you know, I know that the folks who listen to the podcast will really benefit from this dialogue. And as I often say, you know, just knowing that the experiences that we have are not unique to us can really break that sense of isolation that goes on. And that's a really important um, collective experience that's going on. So thank you for that. Any last word before we dial out? Really appreciate the help, Jerry. Oh, it's my pleasure. Red. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all three seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Mandel, the founder of Pivot Desk. What I would say to someone who is on the fence about attending boot camp is you have no idea how much of a slam dunk decision this should be. I know people sit there and they question, well, it's a lot of money. Do I want to spend that money? It's time. Do I want to spend that time away? And I think the way to think about it is with this amount of money and this much time, if I could significantly improve my business's chance for success, would you do it? The answer is yes, you should absolutely go to boot camp because nothing helps your business's chance for success as well as your personal chance for success as much as the bootcamp experience does. Need a reboot? As a busy leader making time to step back, be introspective, and work on your own personal and professional growth can feel challenging, but it's the most necessary work you can do for yourself and your company. Join 15 other smart, courageous leaders for a weekend of pragmatic wisdom and honest conversation at a CEO bootcamp. Reboot what it means to be a CEO and become the leader you were born to be. Learn more about our CEO bootcamp and apply at reboot.io slash CEO bootcamp.